Somewhat um, ironic that in a passage about the blind um, getting sight, I can't even read an order of service. <laughs> why me? Why us? Why, why is it them? People often ask and wonder why trouble has come, why pain, why death and bereavement has fallen on one lot of folks and not another. Many times I've heard someone wonder if in some way they are being punished for something that they have said and done. Other times, and this is a lot worse, I, I, I have heard other people make judgments on others. Oh, that miscarriage is because you and the man you're with weren't married or, or something like that. People making these judgments... And in a recent series based on unanswered prayer, we were looking at how the neat, the tidy answers and the explanations very often don't exist. We live in an unjust and a hurting world, a fallen world, and while we trust and affirm the presence and activity of God in this world, it's not a claim of the gospel that God is making everything absolutely tidy and fair immediately. Now, this very human instinct to have an explanation, this very human instinct to say, why me, why us, or, or why them, is not new. And we see it around in the time of Jesus, and indeed we see it right at the beginning of the reading that Robin read for us. In verse 2, the disciples, Jesus, who sinned? This guy's blind, so who sinned? Was it him, or was it his parents? It was a mistake repeated later in the chapter by, by the Pharisees. Um, verse 34, they say to the man, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? You were steeped in sin at birth. You, you know, that you, you were blind. So it must have been because somebody somewhere sinned. Now that's not what Jesus thinks and says. Verse 3 Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened, he goes on to say, that the works of God might be seen. There was another episode, and we have it in, in Luke chapter 13, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he refers to, to a tower that had fallen in, in the city and had killed uh, people who were underneath the tower at the time it fell. And Jesus said to his disciples, do you think these were the worst sinners in the city? No, they weren't. It doesn't work like that. The world is not some kind of um, cosmic slot machine, you know, and if you put in some kindness into the slot and then pull the handle, some good stuff comes out. And if you put some sin, some naughtiness into the slot, pull the handle and some bad stuff comes out, that is not the world. The world is not like that. Life is much more complicated than that, much more intricate than that. And that simplistic connection between sin and suffering still resurfaces in circles today, even in church. Some people will tell somebody you could be healed if you just discover and repent of your sin that caused this condition. Or others say that God will bless you if you give you riches, if you remain faithful to him, and if, you, if you're generous towards him, particularly if you pay towards my charity, God will prosper you. These are not only wrong, but dangerous. They're cruel. They offer false hope. 
And they create all kinds of false guilt and feelings of failure in people. Why why has this happened? Why is it not changing? Now Jesus doesn't believe then that just because somebody has had this particular instance of suffering, it's because of something in particular they've done. He denies that here. He denies it, as I said, in that passage in Luke 13. And we must beware of falling into that trap. Because just as the why me is a human instinct, so is the instinct that many of us have. And some people in this room I know fine well have said things like this. Why me? Why is this happening to me? What have I done? It might not be that you have done anything in particular that has caused this particular sin or suffer, sorry, suffering or condition or whatever. The world isn't like that. Now, Jesus healed the man, verse 7 and verse 11. And the healings of Jesus are miraculous signs showing what his kingdom is going to be like. His healings are not just some kind of clever trick to impress people or to get somebody's interest. Rather, the kingdom of God is breaking through in Jesus. And one of the expected signs of the Messiah is that the blind would receive sight. I had prophet Isaiah said so, chapters 29, 35, 42, and in other places. And this is one of the promises that Jesus applied to himself. So in the synagogue in, in Luke chapter 4, with the words with which we began our service, Jesus takes some of the prophecies from Isaiah that apply to him, and it includes the blind, the blind receiving sight. Here is one of the indications. Here is one of the signs of the Messiah being here. Jesus, verse 5, is the light of the world. And yet... The signs are that signs, but only that. The kingdom has not yet come in all its fullness. There were other blind men in Judea 2,000 years ago who were not healed by Jesus. And there have since then been many blind or other sufferers who sought, who prayed, but did not receive the healing that they asked for in the way or time that they asked for. Yet within such a world, the life of Jesus is at work, bringing new life to those who receive him. Jesus is the light of the world, but not a light that blinds us and destroys us with its brilliance. Rather, he comes to us in ways that we can see, ways that we can take in. He gives us signs that give guidance, give direction, give meaning, light that we can follow if we put our trust in him. Now, the healing of the man born blind in John 9 caused quite a bit of surprise and, and consternation. Uh, his, his neighbors, verses 8 and 9, is this, is this the same guy? Really? Can he be the same guy? This must just be somebody who looks like him. They, they just couldn't get it at first. He had to say to them, but I am the same man. And then when they took him to the Pharisees, and that would be to authenticate the healing, the Pharisees were angry. They were told what happened. Jesus spat in the ground and made some mud and put it in the man's eyes. And the Jews, the Pharisees thought, making mud is work. And you don't work on the Sabbath. Therefore, this man, 
is a lawbreaker. Therefore, this man is not from God. We're from God. This guy can't be. Somebody makes mud in the Sabbath. Have you ever heard the likes of it? He cannot be from God. And not only did he make mud on the Sabbath, he then actually went and healed this guy in the Sabbath. Now, what's that if that's not working? That was their reaction. And they got angry and, and, and... You see, not just were they wrong, but they've built a, a worldview. They've, they've built a set of beliefs that means they are incapable of seeing that they're wrong. People did that then, people do that now. They build a picture of, and it's not necessarily to do with... Um, Religion and faith, it happens in many spheres of life. People build this picture, this set of values, which makes, it in, makes them incapable of seeing anything that doesn't fit in with that. It's where, it's where prejudice comes from. Here's a packet of understanding. Here's a packet of values that I have. You're not in this packet of values because you're black or I've got red hair or something, and therefore I can... It's terrible. It happened then. It still happens now. Now, the main part of the conversation, and the series that we're doing is uh, conversations between Jesus and other people. The main part of the conversation between Jesus and the man is in the second section that Robin read, verses 35 to 41. I think it's great, verse 35, that Jesus went looking for the guy. The guy had received sight, great. His neighbors and family were a bit, bit, you know, unsure about it all. He had been kicked out of the synagogue, kicked out of the, the local community. But Jesus went and looked for him. But it was more to it than just dealing with the man's loneliness. The man was still unclear about who he had met and still didn't realize that Jesus wanted to give him more. But not just the man being led to get a clearer picture about Jesus. This is what John wants us who read the gospel to, to get as well. John is leading his readers towards the light of the world, which is Jesus, verse 5. We are meant to look at what Jesus is doing and draw the correct conclusions about him coming from God and being a saviour. Now, these are big claims, and sometimes... They come to folks very persuasively in, in one event or at one time. But quite often, and I think this is much more the case, it takes folks a bit of time to look at the claims of Jesus, to work out what Jesus is doing and, and what that means, and, and, and so build up a picture and, and, and come to, to faith. Um, research done at the back end of... Uh, Last, last century, found that on average um, in, in the UK, it was taking folks about four years sometimes just to be an inquirer, to move from being somebody who didn't have faith to an inquirer to, to looking at it and before they got to that place of being a disciple. Well, the guy doesn't have four years here with Jesus and John doesn't have four years to tell us, so a bit like um, the television programs where they make things happen quickly, we, we are run, we, John quickly takes us through what this man's going through. 
In verse 11, he refers to Jesus as the man they call Jesus. By verse 17, in the discussion with the Pharisees, he says Jesus is a prophet. By verse 33, he is affirming that Jesus came from God. And it's not until verse 38 that he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, that's why Jesus came and sought the man out. That is why John tells us about this conversation. Without that final acclamation, verse 38, and without that final verdict, God's healing, God's salvation is not complete. It's not enough to come to the conclusion that Jesus really lived, that Jesus was a man. It's not enough to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, or a prophet. It's not enough to come to the conclusion that in some way he was special. John and Jesus want us to get to the point and the place where we say, here is the Son of God, here is the Savior of the world. And until we see that, and until that light dawns on us, and until we make the same response as the man does in verse 38, then we have not seen the light. The man, we're told, verse 38, worshipped Jesus. Now, that does not mean that the man sang a few gospel choruses to Jesus. Worship is not singing, and singing is not the whole of worship. What does it mean when he said the man worshipped Jesus? It means, basically, that he bowed before Jesus, recognizing who Jesus was, and was making a statement of commitment to Jesus. He was saying that Jesus was going to be first. He was acknowledging that he was simply somebody who'd received the grace of God and he couldn't do anything other than be thankful for it and other than adore the one who had done so much for him. So what if he had been thrown out of the synagogue? So what if the authorities declared him sinful? A man-made religion that the Pharisees had cannot save anyone. Rather, the man had seen the light. He'd met Jesus. He'd been saved now by the Savior of the world. And from now on, the only proper response was a life of gratitude and a life of service to the Son of God who had done that for him. That's worship. A life of gratitude and a life of service offered to God. Not that we never do anything else. Not that we have to just be at church meetings all the time. But everything that we do in life is to be shaped directed by part of our response to God's love given to us through Christ. Now, there remained others in the chapter who did not receive the claims of Jesus. He was too challenging, too threatening to what they wanted to hold on to. The Pharisees had a measure of power and control, only a measure because the country was under Roman occupation, but they had a measure of power and control, and they quite liked it. And they would only receive God if God fitted into what they had already built as their, their thought world, only if he fitted into their views. And as I said, there are still many who try that. 
Many who want God to fit in, they want to control a switch to turn on or turn off the light of the world when it suits them. Well, such a God is not a God you can worship. You cannot worship someone and control them. It is one or the other. Open adoration to someone or something, or rather someone or something that you can manipulate to suit you. They're two very different things and two very different responses here from the man born blind and the Pharisees. But that's what Jesus does. We mustn't think that Jesus turned up and everyone thought he was absolutely wonderful. Come on, they crucified him, for goodness sake. Jesus' coming divides people. It sorts people out according to whether or not they receive him. His coming results in both salvation and judgment. Those who welcome him, who come to see who he is, are delivered into the light. But those who refuse it remain in darkness. And so the same light both casts out darkness and casts shadows. And Jesus called to receive him, to recognize that he's the light of the world, is not then an invitation to immediately step into a world that is completely perfect. We still have the why me, why us questions. Rather, Jesus' invitation, Jesus' challenge, Jesus' command is to see by faith who he is, what he's doing, and receive his offer of eternal life, and live now in the presence of the kingdom of God, while still realizing that that kingdom is not here in its fullness, and in the meantime we still live as part of this fallen, hurting creation. His invitation and command is to receive eternal life now, to experience the green shoots of recovery now, but to know that there is still some way to go. It is an invitation and a command to live in his light, to walk in his ways, to take on Jesus' priorities, and to see life and light, see life in the light of God's mission. But Jesus gives us plenty to go on. He gives us signs showing his credentials, revealing who he is. He's the light of the world. He makes the blind man see. But faith, acceptance of that is not inevitable. The neighbors and the man's family are still unsure, and the Pharisees are very sure that Jesus isn't the Messiah. Just as the world isn't a slot machine, neither are you. And it's not the case that we just do something before you and you think, all right, I must believe now. There is a response of faith and trust, a letting go of some stuff that we previously thought, that we previously um, adhered to, in order to receive Jesus as the light of the world. It might come in stages, just like it did for the man in this chapter. He's a man. He's a prophet. He's from God. I believe and he worships. But the challenge of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus is not received until we get to that point where we say, I believe and we worship. If Jesus is just a good guy, you still haven't got it. If Jesus is some prophet sent by God and that's all he is, you still haven't got it. 
If Jesus is one amongst a, a, a myriad of, of leaders and good people that have lived through history, you still haven't got it. If Jesus is one of a number of options about how we see God and find out who God is, you still haven't got it. The light of the world that Jesus claimed to be, verse 5, is an exclusive claim. It's partly why people, some people won't hack it. They won't give Jesus a chance because, oh no, it has to be some, you know, he has to be one of ten alternatives or I'm not going to listen. They need to look at the signs. We need to help them see the signs so that the claims of Jesus can be shared, that people might see that he's the Messiah, the light of the world. And like the man, worship. Not just on a Sunday, not just with a few songs, not just with parts of our lives, but with a life of devotion and discipleship which is what the light calls us to. Let us pray.